Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing today, Cecil? Doing pretty good, Richie. How you been? Uh, good, man. I finally got over, you know, all the lack of sleep, all the motion sickness, and everything that came with going on Alaskan cruise. Dude, what is it with you and getting sick oh, I, on these I, vacations? I, like, I, I feel I, like every time that you leave <laughs> Miami and you go travel somewhere, you come back with some kind of sick story. Yeah, it's been weird, huh? Right? It's been like a rough year. So, you know, earlier in the year, we go to code camp and I get sick and you have to end up driving me home, right, from Orlando. And, well, this was a cruise ship, right? I mean, ships go up and down and you get motion sickness if you're not quite used to this. In fact, it was so bad on the first day we were out on sea that the crew was getting sick. I mean, it was... It was, Are you it was super bad. Yeah, dude. It was Whoa. it was super bad. You know, I was in the spa with with Lucy and she goes, you know, the woman there goes, Oh, people have been getting sick all all day today. And I'm like, Oh, I do not need to know anything about it's just tell me where to step. All right, I just don't want to step in this stuff. But it was an amazing trip, right? For this was a company retreat. I worked for Brent Ozer Unlimited, and every year we go on a company retreat. And this year we did a cruise to Alaska. And I had never been to Alaska. You know, I'm from Miami. I know swamps. I know beaches. I, and I, I don't know anything <laughs> about cold and forests and stuff, right? So so um, how did you like it, man? How was it? Oh, it was beautiful. I mean, I, I saw m these majestic mountains and these the, the, these um, lakes that were just glass. It, it was, we did, we did a kayak. Like, we all went kayaking. And a bald eagle flew straight, you know, over my head, like directly over my head, about 18 feet above me. And it screamed, America! You know, as, as it was screaming by. We saw s salmon spawning, bear catching the salmon, um, just all oh. sorts of wildlife. And it was, we saw glaciers. I mean, for, I mean, it, it was just mind-blowing. It was so totally awesome. It was totally worth getting sick and then recovering for a week afterwards. But um, man, it was it was just one of those. I'll go through the sickness again to to do that. It was such a fun time. Nice. Well, hey, it's good to hear that you came back in one piece at least, and you got a little bit of time to recoup. It took us a bit, but uh, yeah, it, you know, it's it's turned out to be a little trek between you know Alaska and Miami. I mean, who knew that they were so far away from each other? I mean, that's that's great. Yeah, who would have guessed? Hmm. <laughs> so uh what have you been doing since you know i was on my last adventure well I, I definitely haven't been on any cruise ships or anything like that but um i actually just came back from that conference um not too long ago and i had the opportunity to do my first interview so i thought that was pretty cool wait a second wait a second this is episode 71 you've interviewed 71 people what do you mean it's your first interview? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been, I, I get it i know we've been doing the show for like two years or so we've interviewed tons of awesome people this was a little different, though. Instead of me being the interviewer, I was an interviewee. And so that uh -huh. was kind of interesting. I was on the other side of the conversation. You know, like, like when we talk to people here, like I'm, I'm already prepared with some type of conversation and some, you know, questions I want to ask them. But um, this time I had to be the one on the other side. I had to sit down and, and kind of, you know, I had to answer the questions, right? Like I had to be able to prepare with, you know, interesting and compelling answers for folks. And, and that was a little different. It's kind of cool, but definitely a little, little bit, a uh, little bit different of a thought process, I got to say. 
Right, so how did it feel being on the other side of the table? So for me, we talked a lot about um, things I was doing at work. Um, obviously, we talked about away from the keyboard too, so we got a little bit of promo there. But um, for the for the work related topics, a part of me was had that NDA filter going on, and so <laughs> as they asked me questions, I had to stop for a second and think: Can I say this to you? Am I allowed to say this? Like, because you don't want to be that person, right? Like, you don't want to be the person that leaked the beans on some random interview that you did, right? So you 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 constantly have to be thinking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing that you're saying, oh, that's interesting. And we actually had a conversation about it, but I can't tell you that. Um, <laughs> so, um, but other than that, it was really cool, man. So I was on the MS Dev Show, and then I was also on David Gerard's Technology and Friend Show. And so those are both on Channel 9 at msdn.com. You can go online and check those out. But um, Yeah, we'll put oh. them in the show notes. We'll put the links in the show notes, and so you can go and check out uh, Cecil you know, fumbling for answers. <laughs> I can't say that to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what I did like the whole time. Um, but anyway, speaking of events, we do have an event coming up on October 16th and 17th in West Palm Beach, and that's BuzzJS. And that's pretty much a front-end developer JavaScript conference. So if you're building stuff with Angular, React, Vue.js, whatever JavaScript framework happens to come out by the time we're done talking, this is definitely the conference for you to check out. And if you haven't registered yet, you could use promo code AFTK and you can get 10% off your registration. So again, go ahead, check it out, register, promo code AFTK, and then you can go to buzzjs.com to check out all the information about the conference. Cool. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Kevin Klein. Kevin is a renowned database expert and software industry veteran a longtime Microsoft data platform MVP and a noted leader in the IT data management industry. Kevin is a founder and former president of PASS and the author of popular IT books like SQL in a Nutshell. He's a principal program manager for Century One. Kevin is also a top-rated speaker at industry trade shows worldwide. And Kevin tweets at KE Klein. This episode was recorded on May 30th, 2017. And now, our conversation with Kevin Klein. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. I uh, had a father. My dad was an analog computer engineer. And um, so we traveled a lot. We moved a lot in support of him working for various military and NASA rocketry-related projects. Back in the mid-70s, he had a really bad accident at work and was uh, physically disabled because of that accident. And, you know, if you, you pay much attention to your own uh, employment kind of uh, insurance around what happens if you have to go on disability, is that you are... Uh, if you have a good disability program, actually, uh, you get paid 66% of your regular job. Uh, that's what happened with him. And he was uh, he was a little bit proud and didn't really want to admit that anything needed to change. And so we actually ended up staying in the in the same house and, and some things like that. We didn't adjust what what we were spending right and so we uh, lived in the same house that all of the rocket engineer friends and neighbors lived in and and so we were really uh, quite house poor uh, so we had a nice place but you know i can remember being you know being teased in middle school and and high school about having bad clothes and 
other things that come along with being uh, impoverished in an upper middle class neighborhood. I was a pretty good student and I was good at computers and stuff, partly because my dad was able to coach me on that kind of thing. So when I uh, approached graduation, I remember sitting up late at night and I was going through all of the potential careers that I enjoyed. I had a list on a you know piece of yellow notebook writing tablets. And so I had everything that I, I really liked in one column. And then I had everything that I could make a good living on in the column next to it. You know, they had uh, back in 1985 when I was going to graduate from high school, of course, everything was still paper based. There wasn't an internet or anything like that. So you had to check out a book from the library that tell you all about careers and what their salary potential was. You know, I, I did that kind of exercise where you draw a line from the left to the right side where things matched up and uh, there wasn't a whole lot there. I, I actually wanted to be a, either a teacher or maybe a writer and I also had a, a lot of took a lot of pleasure in, in gardening and, and farm. so I thought hey you know there's a lot of farmers in northern Alabama. I did not follow that path because it's like well farmers and teachers they're not high income jobs and to be honest I'm completely sick of poverty. Um, so <laughs> I marked off everything on the list that once I graduated wasn't going to help me get a, a good middle class job. You know, so I struck through a lot of things uh, that I really wanted to do, you know, just kind of methodically worked my way through the list. And then I also looked at things that were on that list, but were really difficult or really long in obtaining them. So I was very interested in medicine and I had even talked to the uh, the military. Um, the Department of Defense has a really great scholarship program so that if you get into med school they'll actually pay for all of your medical school from beginning oh, to end. Cool. I was pretty much qualified to do that but I didn't want to, you know, go as many years to college as I did K through 12. So, <laughs> you know, I wanted to, to get out into the world and live my life. And so, um, of course. So that was uh, that was kind of the, the motivator that pulled me into computers. I thought, you know, I, I've seen from my own experience and from peers of, of my father that you can have a nice living in computers. You can also get into that quite quickly. And, uh, you know, after a four-year degree, you're uh, probably assured some nice work in that in that area. And I also figured that if if you really like it, if you really figure out what you want to do, then writing and teaching in that field will come. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that uh, the world always needs people who are interested in passing that knowledge on. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I will write and teach someday because of the skills that I develop here in computer. And, and sure enough, that came very quickly. I was really surprised how quickly that came. So what was the uh, the catalyst that kind of set that off for you? So I had graduated and, uh, from, and I had worked actually two two to three jobs concurrently all throughout college. You know, it was, it was a lot of hard work, but, you know, finally I, I finally graduated and I got my first nice professional degree and, I'm sorry, my first nice professional job out of college in which I was working at, I was working at NASA. I was on the, a very large team of people, over 30 people working on the water primarily the water, but also the air recycling system that's in the International Space Station. I'm flipping through this magazine, which back then was a really popular magazine called Datamation. Today, I don't think anybody even has heard of it unless you still code in Fortran or COBOL. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, that was one of my favorite magazines at the time. And um, in the back, they had a, um, 
an advertisement that there were that this magazine was starting a book line and you know so if you were interested in writing about uh, a book uh, you know sending them an abstract then they would consider any that came in and so I um, I had just been accepted into um, the master's degree program at the university there in Huntsville University of Alabama in Huntsville for artificial intelligence and so I sent them the abstract that I had um, written for that master's degree and I thought well maybe I can um, kind of multi-purpose this it turns out that they they sent me a letter said hey you know we like your abstract we'd like you to write this book for us and uh, I was really surprised Um, and in fact uh, I finished that book uh, but I never finished the master's degree so (laughs) priorities right yeah Um, and it was a it was a terrible book to be honest so don't go don't go looking for it Um, but uh, it was one of those things ask you what's the name of the book so it's called Oracle's Cooperative Development Environment, a handbook and user's guide. And so what it was, was Oracle CDE was the first version of their um, development products. They had this stuff called Oracle Forms and Oracle Reports and some other products like that. And it was their first uh, foray into a graphic user interface kind of product. And so it was... Um, you know, it's kind of funny to me now, but it, you know, it ran on Windows 3.1. You guys, you, you may not remember that. Yes, I do remember 3.1. Thank you very much, Kevin. I remember <laughs> it fondly, in fact. I, I remember how much hell it was to trying to connect it to the internet, too. Oh, yeah. It was a beast. Oh, it was terrible. Yep. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot of things. For example, like in writing a book, you really need to have your own group of friends who are qualified technical reviewers. You know, the book company will try to pull some out of their hat, but there's a really good chance that they won't have any. So you, you need those yourself. You need to bring those to the table. You know, and there's some other other little things I learned along the way, uh, but that one taught me a lot of lessons the hard ways. What are some of the other things that you kind of learned as you're writing a book? Because I can imagine a lot of us as software developers and as technical people, we don't really write that much. And I'll be honest with you, one of my favorite things about my computer science degree was the fact that I never had to write papers. Right. (laughs) So I could only imagine somebody like me to be like, okay, well, now I'm going to write a book. Even though that does sound interesting, it's it's almost like a skill set that's a little bit foreign to what we're used to be doing right that was one of the favorite things about my business degree is that i didn't have to write papers you didn't oh, write really? papers for your business degree nope wow. so you did like what it like was amazing group projects <laughs> and program. presentations i guess or yep <laughs> ton of group projects presentations that's what it was oh that's very cool well you know that's those are all different and very appropriate forms of com- communication to learn how to master so if you're doing presentations you know that's that's kind of uh, just like you might have one of many channels, you know, you, you have Twitter, you have Facebook, you have LinkedIn and social media. And so each of those has its own value uh, proposition. So when you learn uh, to do presentation, you know, that's one way for you to, to get really skilled at communications when you're writing. That's different. A few things about uh, writing is that if you're the least bit of a social person, you're going to hate writing because it is the most solitary, soul-grinding, uh, solo work around. You know, it's just you. There's nobody helping you out. There's nobody who is 
around to bounce ideas off of or or any of those sorts of things. In fact, it, it has kind of forever affected my brain going forward. I have always since then preferred to do joint presentations, you know, to have one or two or three people doing a pre-con with me or a week-long class, whatever kind of teaching I'm doing. I'd much rather have a couple buddies there. I'd, you know, I'd much rather have a couple co-authors uh, just because I am a little bit uh, more on the social side. I, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy people. And so uh, to do these things alone is just really, really hard. It's, it, it's also, uh, to do it well, it's, uh, it's an exercise in good estimating. And so uh, a lot of people I know, when they think about how to finish a book, they think in terms of, you know, I've written a couple blog posts before. This, this shouldn't be too big of a deal. And yeah, <laughs> so you chuckle a little bit. It's like, oh, my friend, um, this, is, this is a big deal. You know, it, it's really, really hard. Particularly, um, you know, when I look at a book like Sequel in a Nutshell, which I'm actually working on a fourth edition right now. And this is the kind of thing that, you, you know, you build for a multi-hundred page book, your estimates are going to be in the hundreds of hours, you know, to complete a major revision to a really big book. And so, you know, when you think about writing a blog post, that's the kind of thing that most of us can finish in a single evening, you know, maybe two. You know, that's like the difference between filing a, a few papers that are sitting on top of your desk and cleaning an entire hoarder house, right? You know, you you, you start a, a, your, at your desk and you're like, no problem. I know where everything goes. It's very quick. It's very direct and you're done. Whereas with writing a book, uh, there's so much work that it's almost like, I don't even know where to start. And so you have to have uh, just a really deep well of self-motivation and kind of self actualization to get through it uh, otherwise it'll it'll eat you and you won't um, you won't be able to finish it so when you're writing a technical book I can imagine particularly as you're talking about this is going to be hours and hundreds of hours of work to get done I can imagine at some point like you you must get tired you must hit some level of mental fatigue you know maybe even that mental fatigue kind of lets you just say stuff like okay let me just get this chapter out of the way so I could kind of move on right and, and get it finished you know how do you how do you deal with things like that and you know do you have a do you have a uh, i suppose um a group of other technical um experts that help review your material to kind of make sure that you know you keep out of i guess going the i suppose the lazy route we could call it and just kind of just you know brushing it off and getting it done well there's you're right there's a couple things that really will burn you out one is the fact that very few employers are going to let you do book writing on their time. And so yeah. that means you've got a full-time job and then you also do writing on top of that, you know. For a long time when my kids were young, it was the kind of thing where I'd, you know, work the full day and get the kids to bed. And then about nine o'clock, I'd write for an hour, hour and a half, and then half a day on Saturday. And I did that for many years. Absolutely hit burnout somewhere down the line. It's, you know, it's just a, it's not a question of, uh, if you will, it's a question of when do you. And so the thing for me that really um, enabled me to survive that kind of stuff was, well, you know, there's some ancient wisdom that says that you need to take a day of respite. Uh, you know, some people call it a Sabbath. There's other names for it, but I use the term a day of respite. And for me, it was Sunday and uh, and is Sunday. And Sunday, I, I, I don't do anything, nothing productive. Um, 
I literally just read a couple news magazines and um, hang out with the family and we watch some TV or or I also will do some things that are if if they are productive they're things that are no pressure um, you know, you know right. so it's not chores around the house uh, it might be something like something I've been wanting to do in terms of a beautification project in the house or something I like I'm an avid gardener and so you know something in the garden outside the house um, and I find that working with my hands is kind of the antithesis of um, all of this in your head stuff of being a technologist and also writing right. so for me being able to do something that's extremely uh, physical you know this is the kind of thing that our grandfathers who all had to work physical labor jobs probably hated but for <laughs> me it's such a difference compared to what I do every day that it's actually it's a kind of a Walden Pond sort of zen place where my mind can wander you know so if I'm I used to have a a 1966 Chevy truck I was restoring and so to go out on that and twist bolts that were uh, kind of rusted into place was just a great stress relief you know now it's it's mostly digging in the dirt and uh, carrying big paving bricks around and doing things like that yeah it's like your your getaway from you know your regular day-to-day so to speak yep one of the things that i wanted to know too is as you as a person that's writing these technical books how do you how do you really exercise creativity because every time i think about a book regardless of whatever type of book it is Right, there's some creative energy that has to go inside of it. Whether whether it comes out in the examples you give or illustrations or whatever the case is. You know, with you writing these, you know, highly technical books, how do you how do you really try and get that that creative juice out and what what kind of yeah. inspires you to kind of get that um like that going? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And in in some ways you do kind of feel um a little defeated by something like that because there are not a lot of opportunities to be really creative in technical writing. You take them where you can get them. Um, <laughs> right, you've, uh, you know, it, it also depends on the writer, too. You know, I, I have friends and colleagues who are not that much, never really have been into creative writing. And so for them, that's, you know, that's not a, a major goal in the process. For me personally, it I do enjoy creative aspects of writing, but I don't strive for that, and I don't I don't miss it horribly if I'm not able to to you know work out something really smart and creative and and so forth. But you know, like you said, I try to use examples that do bring to life a little bit about who I am as a writer and you know the things that are of interest to me and and what I pay attention to. Uh, so yeah, you know, I've had examples that were all based around classic cars or, or different silly things like that. But you know, for me, that's uh, that's just an aspect of my personality, and so it was, uh, you know, something that gave me a little bit of pleasure in in writing that. I had to I have to ask you this question, Kevin. Do you find that being a teacher has affected your your day job any 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 bit? Like, has it made you a better professional? Having to obviously go through and explain these things in a certain level of detail um, over and over and over again to certain people. I would say without a doubt, without a doubt. And I would also go one step beyond that, Cecil, and say that um, anything that you learn how to do that strengthens your communication skills in any context, whether that's written, whether that's, you know, in-person presentation, whether that's uh, as a lecturer or 
whether that might be a someone sitting at a table moderating a panel discussion or a group discussion anything that helps you refine your communication skills is absolutely going to pay dividends in your career in technology and the reason for that is our industry has a multitude of people who are technically excellent and it has a remarkable deficiency of people who are good communicators you know you spend much time working on IT projects and you'll find that the big failures in all of these projects is almost invariably people problems. It's not that the technology couldn't do it, it's that people weren't communicating or uh, you know they hadn't set expectations properly or it, invariably it breaks down to uh, typically to a communication problem or some other form of people problems. Maybe it's egos that sometimes happens, maybe it's right. political um, motivators, but you know that's the kind of thing that we see that that ruins projects. And so the people who really at the end of the day rescue these projects aren't just people who are good technologists, they're good communicators. Let me ask you this, Kevin. I know you're also a, a public speaker or you you know you've obviously done presentations and workshops and stuff like that. Which one started first for you? Were you a, a teacher first and then started to do um, conferences and you know talks and stuff like that? Or did it start the other way around? Yeah, for me, it started with writing. And then from there, I did um, public speaking. Uh, but I, I guess I should mention, too, I was aware that, that this was a, a struggle for me. Way back in high school and, and college, I took some... Um, drama classes actually I was pretty shy so it was it was something that I was like you know I, I want to conquer this I want to I want to get over this because I feel like this is something that's important to know how to do um, and I, I wasn't trying to excel at it I was just trying to not suck at uh, public speaking and so um, you know I decided to go ahead and uh, you know get involved in drama and and then that went really well, surprisingly well. And then I decided to, um, you know, audition for a play, and that went really well. And so, you know, I actually wound up acting um, for several years. I gave it up in college for various reasons, but uh, so I kind of forgot at first about uh, doing that drama sort of stuff. But at least in a professional context, um, I started out doing the um, the writing, and then then I started to work on um, getting up and you know teaching a lesson and building some slide decks. You should see my early slide decks; they're awful. They're just so bad. <laughs> uh, you know, I feel they're the just same word. Yeah, they're just word salad. You know, it's just uh, you know too many words, way too many words. I'm the kind of person that once I try something and I feel like I can be better than mediocre, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm on a good day, I'm mediocre, you know, and on a bad day, I'm just horrible. But uh, there's a there's a lot of things where uh, if I feel like I, I am able to do better than mediocre, then I once I uh, decide to go ahead and tackle it, then, you know, I'm in this for mastery. I, I, I'm not just doing this because I want to be able to, uh, you know, just keep my nose above water. I want to I want to get good at it. This is one of those situations, you know, when we're talking about speaking or writing or things like that. When it comes to to presentations and such uh, or even in general, like how do you present yourself in many different ways, you know, whether that's um how you dress or your demeanor 
or you know how your body language once I decide that this is important those are the kind of things that I went and read up on is like you know what what are better ways to uh, to dress for a person in IT what are better ways to um, how do you stand uh, what's your diction like what is your you know how do you pronounce it I have friends who were comparable to me you know growing up in Huntsville Alabama uh, just as smart and just as capable, but they never decided to shake their southern accent. And I feel, I can't help but feel like that. I don't have any empirical evidence, but I can't help but feel like that, that you know, that factored into certain situations in, in which people will judge you. And so I, I guess maybe uh, uh, that's an aspect of uh, actually uh, being a shy person or a person who's uh, a little bit retiring from the public eye is that you... Um, you're always worried that people are judging you harshly. And so for me, whenever I tackle anything that I feel like is going to put me in the public eye, I typically do try to, to, to get really good at it. So I want, to, I want to talk about that point you made just now about your Southern accent a little bit, because that's actually not something I've, we've heard about before. We've heard things like, I don't speak the language or, you know, I'm not from this part of the world, so to speak. But, um, you know, being American, and living in America and, you know, working in America, do you find that it is like a common thing to get judged based on accents from different states? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? Huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, and, you know, no matter what you are or how you present, there are certain areas that are safe. Uh, and then there's, you know, uh, so I don't feel like anywhere south of the Ohio River, I would be judged harshly if, if I was speaking with my natural southern accent and talking to people that way. Um, well, my mind was just blown. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if I go to California, if I go deeper to the south end of Florida, you know, if I go to New York or New England anywhere, then, you know, people have a different opinion. You know, I decided a long time ago that that was going to be something I could turn on or off, not something that it w- that was going to control me. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that, uh, you know, to get really good at anything, all it really takes is practice, deliberate practice. You know, like uh, not just, you know, trying something over and over again and, and not paying attention to it, but, you know, like you would as a, um, you know, an athlete who's trying to improve their performance. Um, and if, if you're really struggling, you get a coach. And so those, those are things that roll around in my head, too, that, uh, you know, if I do want to excel, practice and, and where appropriate, you know, bring in someone who's way better than you as a coach and, help, and ask for them to help you. Yeah, when I was um, going through MBA school, I never finished because I was smart. They had, they had mentioned that many CEOs get diction coaches and executives get diction coaches because, you know, they're from all over the world. And for them to, you know, not only to relate to the people that underneath them, but for them to actually understand them, they have diction coaches come in and, you know, help curb their, their accents. Yeah. You know, and I found this to be particularly valuable when I went to work at Deloitte uh, that was in the the 90s. I worked there for most of the 90s, and I was uh, the lead DBA for the SQL Server team, and then I was the manager for information and enterprise architecture. So most of the high-powered individuals in that company, the partners, were MBA graduates of the top business schools in the world. You know, they they are more critical judges, I would say, of 
how you sound and how you present yourself. And so that's where I first really became aware of it, but um, where I found that it made a, a, a really big difference in a positive way and not you know forcing me to be somebody who I wasn't just forcing me to be a little bit more universal was when I was joined the board of directors for PASS uh, so in 1999 uh, nine of us got together to form PASS uh, and I was actually very lucky in, in those early days I was one of the executive committee members from the start I was the vice president of marketing for for PASS and its inception when it was first formed and communication was really really important in, in that role and I began to see that since this was an international organization, it was, um, you know, the kind of thing that uh, how you spoke and how you presented yourself did make a difference, uh, particularly in your credibility uh, and how much credibility, uh, the term I'm thinking of is uh, people kind of give you the benefit of the doubt until you prove that, to them that you're an idiot, right? <laughs> and so if you sound the part and you look the part and you don't actually know what you're doing you're going to get the benefit of the doubt a lot longer than if you don't sound quite right so you know if you come into a situation with a little bit of a deficit because you sound like you're from a backwater or you sound uneducated um, you get the benefit of the doubt a much briefer period of time people are like I want to know if you know your stuff or not and um, so I noticed that right away when I was at that senior leadership level and pass. And then a couple of years later, I actually became the president. I was the third president of pass and I was president for two terms actually. And that's where I learned the importance of multiple channels of communication, both the, the spoken and things like body language. Uh, I was really shocked by how important body language was in a boardroom setting because a lot of people feel really on the defensive while others go on the attack you know other people are literally trying to get your budget for them right and so body language can make a big difference right away in, in in how you are perceived by others are you an aggressive person trying to take something from them or are you a cooperative person trying to be open to a discussion or perhaps even helpful and that was especially important in the context of past because even as the president or you know the other uh, executive members you have no authority over anybody's life in that room so like if we all work for the same company and our boss comes in and says you got to work extra hours this week guys we're going to lose this project if we don't all put in an extra 10 or 15 hours this week well we'd all stay late because that person actually has some authority over whether we get a paycheck that covers our mortgage or not, right? But on the passport of directors, you can't make anybody stay late. They're all volunteers. They can all go home at the end of the day um, if they want to. How you present yourself, how you project yourself, and the way in which it's perceived is excruciatingly important. And so a lot of my management style and, and my leadership style was was honed for better or for worse in this environment that's highly consensus driven which means you need to work with multiple people simultaneously on multiple levels right and connect at an emotional level rather than just a you know what this is what we need to do so I want everybody to shut up and get to work you know you can't have that kind of autocratic style um, in in a, a meeting 
or I'm sorry, in an organization where everybody is there because they want to be there because you'll quickly make them not want to be there. Yeah, um, so, right. you know, there were so many lessons learned about at that stage of my life about how you make people feel, how they feel about you when they take a look and actually examine what you're doing, you know, their perceptions of you. And so I think that's one area where we as technical people, uh, I, I think we gravitate even into the technology roles because we don't want to be under that kind of scrutiny, right? We don't want to feel yeah, that the, makes sense. you know, I like to work with my computer. I don't want to work with a bunch of people all day, <laughs> you know? Um, and it doesn't talk back and it doesn't give me crap and it kind of just does what it's told and you know, exactly. we have no problems. Right, exactly. Oh, it gives me crap all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. That's why it's back at Dell right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beat that thing around, right? Yeah, so you know, it was a, that was a really formative time for me. As being a community leader, right? What are some of the harder problems that you find yourself having to solve? Oh, again, they're all people-related stuff. <laughs> I'm not yeah. surprised. We gotta get rid yeah. of those things. I'm telling you, uh, one of the most shocking things that I'm just, I'm still, I guess, I'm still naive about is how big some people's egos are. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to name any names or anything like that. Oh, but so you've met me, I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, there are there are people, let's say an organizer for a SQL Saturday, or perhaps like in your own area, like uh, Diana, um, gosh, is it? Uh, Benacourt. Benacourt. I was going to say Bellacourt, but Benacourt. Wonderful person, beautiful lady, uh, extremely talented, you know, and you recognize when she and um, uh, others on the leadership team are working really hard to put together the SQL Saturday down there in South Florida, that this is a volunteer effort. And yet there are some people out there, speakers and things like that, who will treat, and I'm not speaking of Diana specifically, but you know, they'll treat an organizer really, really bad because they didn't get some kind of special treatment or they you know they weren't told that the speaker room is in this particular place or the organizer comes to them and says um, hey you know uh, we actually want all the speakers to have this you know mention this one slide that has the different vendors that are you know putting some big bucks into sponsoring our event and then you know that speaker will chew them out uh, I'm just always always startled uh, would people opt to participate in a community focused event like a SQL Saturday or in a user group and then treat the organizers not only like they're paid help but that they're they're not really good paid help and you know and that kind of thing just um, uh, it, you know really really gets my uh, gets my blood hot you know I start to see red when I see people acting that way I probably have done that too myself you know <laughs> a time or two which is the irony in all this is that sometimes uh, we uh, commit the same sense that we get offended by but um, you know I, I just have seen that a, a lot of times where there's uh, somebody who's, um, you know, a, a big fish in a little pond, and then they go and uh, participate in some other sort of a community event, and they just don't recognize that the people that are putting it all together are there for the love of the community, not because uh, you know, of a paycheck or something like that. Well, listen, I asked for Perrier, and if it's not there, someone's going to have it. That's, <laughs> That's all <right>. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Brown, what is it, the green M&Ms or brown M&Ms or something like yeah, that? That's right. Hey, hey, listen, I only chewed out one one SQL Server organizers, and that was all the, the Nashville people. They have no clue what they were doing. They were horrible. <laughs> they are just driving it straight into a, oh. a, a cliff, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, one question we always ask our guests, you know, and since this is away from the keyboard as well, what are some of the things that you do when you're away from the keyboard? Well, I have to admit that I'm hardly ever away from the keyboard, and that is because my main form of entertainment is I play MMORPGs, if you're familiar with the term. Ooh, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, so, I, you know, I have a level 105 character that's, you know, battling oh, orcs constantly. Um, so, uh, sometimes it's hard. Warcraft? Uh, no, I'm actually, I play Lord of the Rings online as my game. Oh, so. okay. Yeah. But when I'm away from the key, uh, the keyboard, I love to read. I read both um, science fiction and fantasy and a lot of nonfiction stuff. So like the book I'm currently working through right now is uh, it's a deep historical topic. So I'm not sure if you want to want the quick synopsis on that or not. Um, well, what, what's the title? We get the title. Uh, so it's called The Sword in the Bible. Uh-huh. And the idea uh, behind this book is why... Did Britain in 1917 issue the Balfour Declaration? The Balfour Declaration was something that Britain supported, which was the establishment of an independent state of Israel uh, for for the Jewish people. A homeland for the Jews, if you will. And why did they do that, um, you know, 40 years before the Holocaust necessitated it? Right. right. Why did they do it just when it was a, a kind of a nice to do sort of thing? What was it about the um, the British that caused them to feel kinship with the Jewish diaspora around the world and you know around Europe? And so it's it's a very very fascinating book by a Pulitzer Prize winner named Barbara Tuckman um, that looks at the historical connections all the way back to the early the early period after Christ, all the way through medieval times and, and into modern times as to these different uh, connect- connections between the the Jewish people and the people of uh, Great Britain. That's fascinating. I didn't know that they, they did that. Yeah, indeed. It's called the Balfour Declaration, and it said it laid out the territory of Palestine, and which later led to the kibbutzes, which led to you know a, lo- well, a lot of fighting uh, that we still deal with today. Yeah. So that's, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that I read uh, on, uh, on a lot of nights. If it's not history, then it's going to be, uh, then it's going to be a sci-fi story or a fantasy story of some kind. So I do a lot of reading. I also read a lot about, um, uh, pretty deeply on all sorts of eclectic, um, nonfiction topics or magazines. So I read things like foreign policy magazine. I, I read, um, the economist, which is quite a hefty news magazine a lot of words in there read that cover to cover every week um, and I garden as I mentioned and I have a little bit of a fitness program so I work out and do some stuff like that we'd like to thank Kevin for being a guest on the show it was great to have the opportunity to chat with him if you like the show please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com also remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. Yeah. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you'll get extra episodes and behind-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have web designer and developer Chris Coyer. He's the, the code pen guy, right? Yes. Oh, wow. This should, uh, this should be pretty interesting. 
Bankas. to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! Now, tell me about some of your previous um, broadcasts. Who were some of your other guests, and what were some of the things that you have gotten positive uh, feedback on? You know, from from those events. Oh man, we've had lots of different types of folks, right? So we've we've spoken to students. Um, we spoke to a model once. That was interesting. Uh, no, <laughs> a model that was studying computers, computer science. Remember that? That's yeah, she was more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one example. So we've had students. Um, one of the ones that I like, we spoke to Gareth Swinnepoel. We spoke to him a lot about South Africa, South African wine, South African food. You know, a lot of the, you know the dishes and you know the history of the um, the country because you know neither Richie or I have been there. So, you know, he was kind of like our tour guide throughout the country, so to speak. So, so that was an interesting conversation. So, ooh, um, interesting, interesting segue, Cecil. Um, we we were at the Animal Kingdom Lodge uh, last Monday, actually. And um, we had some South African wine. Oh, really? What'd you, yeah, we had, you a, had a nice Shiraz. And, um, and in fact, we were at the uh, Af- Animal Kingdom Lodge mm. and in their quick serve. So this is essentially like, you know, you go up to the window and they, you tell them, I want the sandwich and they give you the sandwich. They had bottles of South African wine there or African wine there. Oh, wow. And I'm, wow. Yeah, I know. And we were like, score. <laughs> <laughs> so good. it's like, what's this? 15 bucks good <laughs> sure has <laughs> and it was just really weird it was nine o'clock at night there was you know exhausted families all around us and we're just here bottle of wine two pulled pork sandwiches you know <laughs> drinking it up and you see the parents like damn them i want nice. one of those like yeah <laughs> nice but yeah, man, so, so we, we've spoken to a lot of various types of people um you know game developers to entrepreneurs to you know, this guy named Buck Woody. Yeah, yeah, we talked to him. Yeah. Yeah, and so we talked a lot about uh, his work at NASA. Mm-hmm. And all yeah, the stuff that was a cool he, conversation, too. Like yeah, he, was, he was a really interesting person to, to have a conversation with. Um, yeah, we, we talked to Casey Champion. We talked to her a lot about um, her love yeah. of drama and 
Uh, she did that, and then she uh, yeah spoke to her about Disney, and she's also yep. a um, a high school teacher in addition to yep. working at Microsoft. So we we spoke to her about that too, and what was that dynamic like? Wow. Um, so again, I mean, you know, I think everybody has a story, and everybody's story is different, and you know, even if you end up at the same place, like the journey to that place is is various, right? So right. um, right. It, it's really just us just trying to understand the people behind the technology. Because um, you could go anywhere and you could, you know, you could pick up a book and you could read about compilers and servers and stuff elsewhere. Boring. You know what I mean? Um, but tell me, why is it interesting to you, right? And why is it that you decided to make this, you know, the career that you want to bet your life on? And, you know, what else do you do with your life, right? And what are the things that you kind of use to help balance yourself as you, you know, go through your day to day? Well, I, um, uh, Buck Woody and I are actually contemporaries uh, in many ways. So um, we both worked at NASA for a while. We both worked on, you know, early relational databases and um, both were DBAs in the 2000s, wrote books. Um, oh, wow. And then uh, moved on to big enterprise software. He went to Microsoft actually for a while and, and I went to Quest Software at about the same time. Um, but, you know, I, I uh, had a father, my dad was an analog computer engineer, and um, so we traveled 